Hey there, welcome to this bonus episode of Rethinking Wellness. I'm Christy, and this is an audio version of my bi-weekly Q&A newsletter, which is also out today on Substack. And it's going to be quick and dirty audio over here with little to no editing because I'm dealing with limited childcare right now and just doing what I can when I can, so we are embracing imperfection today. My answer to the first question is available to everyone, and it's about nutrition response testing. And then there's a bonus one for paid subscribers about doctors recommending diets for myalgic encephalomyelitis slash chronic fatigue syndrome, or ME-CFS, and other poorly understood illnesses. To hear the second one, you can subscribe at rethinkingwellness.substack.com. Paid subscribers also get great perks like early access to every episode, bonus episodes with our guests, commenting privileges, and subscriber-only threads where you can connect with other listeners, bonus Q&As like this one, which are usually just available in written form, but I'm actually going to try to start adding more audio ones going forward, and lots more. Just go to rethinkingwellness.substack.com to sign up. That's rethinkingwellness.substack.com. And if you're already a paid subscriber, thank you so much for your support. It really means the world to me. Before I jump into answering the questions, just a reminder that my answers are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for medical or mental health advice. Although I am a registered dietitian, I'm not your particular dietitian, unless you happen to be one of my one-on-one clients. Hi. But even then, this podcast is not a session. Also, I just want to quickly share some exciting news, which is that early bird enrollment is now open for my upcoming workshop, How to Break Free from the Wellness Trap. In this workshop, we'll explore how to spot wellness misinformation and sidestep spurious claims and how to recognize what really works. I'll share some key strategies to help you steer clear of wellness traps so that you can pursue true well-being for yourself and promote it for your clients if you're a fellow health professional. Speaking of which, registered dietitians can get CPE credits for attending pre-approved by CDR. We'll discuss why trendy diets and alternative health diagnoses often lack solid evidence, the lowdown on the safety, efficacy, and marketing of herbal and dietary supplements, how social media can be a breeding ground for false wellness claims, a wealth of helpful ways to navigate these pitfalls and be discerning about wellness trends, and lots more. If you've been enjoying the content in this podcast, check out the workshop to go deeper and learn some of my favorite principles and practices for navigating the wilds of wellness culture. Plus, you'll get a chance to ask me your questions in a live Q&A. Just go to christyharrison.com slash wellnessworkshop to learn more and sign up. That's christyharrison.com slash wellnessworkshop. So with that, let's go to the first question. And just FYI, it contains the name of a problematic kind of test, as well as the name of a supplement company. The person writes, Hi, Christy. I'm fairly new to your work, but I've been working with a nutritional therapist on recovering from disordered eating for around four years now. As for many of us, my journey started in diet culture and then shifted to wellness culture as I continued to try and solve my quote-unquote weight issue once and for all. In wellness culture, I discovered nutrition response testing, or NRT, and the supplement company standard process. At the time of discovering this, I was so desperate for answers and help, I did not do too much research into it and instead decided to listen to my gut and trust the people who introduced it to me. Now that I'm in a much better place and have brought two kids into this world, I want to know exactly what it is I'm buying into. I've tried to do some more research but still feel a little conflicted. I believe NRT has helped me with a number of medical issues that I could not find acceptable answers to in the Western medical world. Raynodes, facial flushing, pinworms, and quote-unquote COVID toes or chillblains, to name a few. 
I've been critically thinking about the placebo, nocebo, and care effect, along with the natural progression of disease, to try and explain some of my positive outcomes. But again, this is challenging. There is what I think is an orthorexic component to the NRT practitioners' approaches, and this raises red flags for me. Is NRT and standard process something you're familiar with? I'd really love to hear your thoughts and opinions about this. Thank you so much for the work you do. Don. So thanks, Don, for this great question, and I'm glad my work has been helpful to you in thinking critically about these issues so far. I can definitely empathize with feeling desperate for answers and just going along with something because you trust the people who recommended it. I've done that many, many times myself in my search to heal and manage my chronic conditions, so I get it. Sadly, though, that combination of desperation and trust can lead us to fall prey to some dubious wellness claims. And unfortunately, I think that might be what's going on here. I was only vaguely aware of nutrition response testing before your question, but when I looked into it, I realized why. It's actually just another name, kind of a rebranding for an unproven and unreliable diagnostic test called applied kinesiology, which is also known as health kinesiology or muscle testing. This spurious test can take a few different forms. Most commonly, the first step is that a practitioner gives a patient a vial of a food or substance to hold, or sometimes they hold it near the patient. And in other versions, the practitioner might just instruct the patient to think about a particular thing or a particular person even. Uh, I'll link to a resource on that in the show notes for this episode. And in nutrition response testing, the practitioner puts their hand on an area of the patient's body. Next, the practitioner pushes down on the patient's arm, supposedly testing the strength of the muscle. And perceived weakness is taken as a sign that the patient has a sensitivity to the food or substance that's being held in the vial. Or in the case of NRT, it's seen as evidence that the patient has a problem with the part of their body that the practitioner's hand is touching. And of course, what exactly constitutes quote-unquote weakness is very subjective, right? The practitioner's own biases about which foods are bad or which organs are damaged can easily lead them to believe a patient's arm is a little bit floppier in the presence of, say, gluten. And patients themselves can feel weaker when they're told that the vial contains a substance they believe is bad or when a practitioner is pushing on a part of their body that feels vulnerable, Despite some practitioners' scientific-sounding assertions, there's no good evidence behind this kind of testing. Applied kinesiology has been disproven in numerous studies over the years, going back to the 1980s when the method was found to be, quote, no more useful than random guessing. We'll link to that study in the show notes here, too. And a double-blind, placebo-controlled study published uh, more than a decade later in an integrative medicine journal came to the same conclusion. Even the chiropractor who developed NRT seems to acknowledge at some level that this method is bogus. Quote, nutrition response testing is for screening purposes and should not be relied upon by itself as a final test of the presence or absence of any disease or conclusive evidence about nutritional deficiency or sensitivity, says a disclaimer on his website. The nutrition response testing system, wellness products, and statements about dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration, end quote. So in other words, nutrition response testing shouldn't actually be used to diagnose anything. Now, as for standard process, it looks to me like a pretty typical supplement company with all the issues that go along with that. So its products aren't tested by the FDA for safety or efficacy before going to market because no supplements are. I'll link to a piece I wrote about that in the show notes for this episode. And 
uh, standard process products don't even appear on the USP verified list, which is a voluntary third third party verification program that ensures products meet some minimum safety standards. Now, the USP seal doesn't mean that supplements, the supplements in question are effective or even that they're necessarily safe in your particular case because they may still have interactions with medications you're taking, for example. But, you know, if you must take supplements, in my view, getting USP verified ones is also a must. So I'd also be curious about the financial relationship between the supplement company and the NRT practitioners you saw. In episode 18, which is available now for paid subscribers and comes out for free on Monday, registered dietitian Jonas Sulman talks about his experience working at an alternative medicine clinic and discusses the major financial entanglements between practitioners in that space and supplement companies. So where does that leave you? I know you said you feel like NRT has helped you with some of your conditions, but I'd invite you to consider that other factors are likely responsible for the improvements. So like you said, the placebo, nocebo, and care effects and the natural progression of disease could definitely explain a lot of it. The mind-body connection is incredibly powerful, especially in situations where the symptoms involve pain and inflammation. And then simple random chance might also play a role. So for example, if you were prescribed a bunch of vitamins and minerals based on a dubious test, it's possible that you might have been deficient in one of them and not known it. So that doesn't mean that the NRT test was accurate. It was just a random guess. But those can be right some of the time simply by coincidence, right? And coincidence could also be involved in your experience with the pinworms. So these parasites are very common among kids and caregivers, especially those who change diapers. They're, you know, intestinal parasites. And they tend to respond well to standard antiparasitic treatments. We'll link to a CDC um, page on that in the show notes for this episode. So if you get pinworms on a recurring basis, it may be because you're encountering them in your environment and getting reinfected, not necessarily because the standard treatment didn't work. Conversely, if you didn't get them for a while, you might consider whether anything else in your environment changed in a similar time frame. You know, so it might not have been the the diet and the NRT process that you did or the supplements you took, but rather, you know, a coincidence of something else changing in your environment during that time. Finally, you say that you notice an orthorexic component to the NRT practitioner's approaches, and I think you're absolutely right. You know, bogus tests like this one are often used to make restrictive diet recommendations that are equally suspect. So it's great that this raises red flags for you, and I'd encourage you to keep listening to that skeptical inner voice. Thanks so much, John, for the great question and to all the free subscribers for listening. And paid subscribers can stick around for the bonus Q&A. And everyone can ask their own questions for a chance to have them answered in an upcoming episode or newsletter by going to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. Okay, FYI, the next question involves unpacking specific diet advice that was recommended by a doctor. The person writes, first, thank you for your work. I'm on disability, so can't become a paid subscriber, or I would, but I loved your first book, and as someone who's had juvenile, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis for 45 years, I'm so grateful for your second book. I was recently diagnosed with myalgic encephalomyelitis, ME, a.k.a. chronic fatigue syndrome, or CFS, which I'll be calling ME slash CFS here, um, although I'm sure I've had it for at least 30 years. I'm seen at one of the few clinics in the country that actually specializes in this condition, which long COVID bears similarities to. 
While my doctor doesn't push this, given that I've explained I'm still in recovery from anorexia, they give as their boilerplate advice that people with ME should try to should avoid sugar and follow a Mediterranean diet. ME is still nowhere being nowhere near being fully understood, but many experts agree that it involves brain inflammation. I won't go into the subtler explanations. I would love to eat a Mediterranean diet because those foods are what I most enjoy, but gut issues like IBS and gastroparesis that I've had due to childhood surgery and my lack of energy for any real cooking mean I eat a lot of processed food and sugary things. I have a terrific health at every size dietitian who likes your work and who is all about my eating whatever appeals to me as long as I'm not deluding myself into enjoying diet food, for example. My question is not just for me, but for anyone with a little understood illness for which there are currently no great treatments. If your doctor is pushing diet restrictions or changes with the implication that if you don't follow that advice, you're never going to improve, how best to handle that? Thank you, Allison. You've been listening to a free preview of this episode. To hear the rest and get tons more bonus content, become a paid subscriber to Rethinking Wellness by going to rethinkingwellness.substack.com. That's rethinkingwellness.substack.com.